Welcome to Horror Comics Podcast, episode 15. Oh man, uh, what a, what, what a, what a time, what a, what a time it has been. Um, I, I want to start off with, um, some, some positive news here. That's, that's, uh, that's a good way to start a horror podcast, but no, really. Um, so I had talked about in a, in an, ep- an episode that was just an update, um, that how it was actually episode 10. Uh, I talked about Reggie from Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill podcast. Also, he's, he's, both of them are part of, um, Weird Science, uh, DC Comics podcast from time to time. And, um, he had had some health, um, sc- I mean, a major, but I didn't want to really go into major detail. It's not really my place to spread that information, but, um, he is back and doing very well. And for a time there, that didn't seem uh, like it was ever going to be the case. But crazy things happen. And you can go to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill um, on any podcasting platform you want to check out or that you use or whatever. And uh, they actually finally posted, they were able to rather, uh, finally record an episode and post it of his they basically tell everything that happened and all the all the gory details and um it's very interesting and so if any of you did kind of venture over to their podcast after i talked about it because it is amazing i've talked about their podcast on almost every episode of this one um they are so great and if you love comic book history history in general they are just i mean they do crazy research they don't do like me and like wikipedia and and try to find a couple of websites they like really do some awesome research uh on uh publishers on uh, the creators the writer everything it's 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 amazing they finally they posted an episode about everything that went down with all this stuff and uh it's very interesting and i just um really i was just like very happy that uh you know he, he he's Still got some ongoing uh, things to, you know, work towards. But overall, he's back podcasting. Reggie is uh, with Chris, um, as it should be. And uh, he's also back on Weird Science, as he also should be. Because those are, uh, you know, those are some great guys, too. And some very fun segments there. Um, But it's just great to have him back. to be able to listen to him and it was really interesting hearing what went down it's very uh it's scary um it's very eye-opening and kind of makes you kind of makes you think a little bit but um yeah so go check out chris and reggie's cosmic treadmill and check out weird science dc Kunk's podcast uh, to hear reggie hopefully you you did go check him out and hopefully you're a fan um but yeah so i just wanted to give an update on that because you know i i feel like i can finally I, I had been getting updates from uh, folks that I know um, or like, you know, folks from Weird Science talking to Jim and list, they, they had posted an update on their um, Cosmic Treadmill podcast too, Chris did. Um, but again, you know, it's like you nobody really wants to say too much because, you know, it's not like we're, we're community. We're not like family 
And, you know, not everybody even really knows each other, uh, but you feel like you do whenever you listen to somebody and interact with mutual friends and whatnot. Sometimes you feel like, you know, you feel like you know a person, even though I know it sounds crazy, but you know what I mean. It's, it's somebody that you come to care about in a certain way, um, even if it's just listening to them. And then, so, you know, it affects you and it's interesting. It's an interesting way, the way that people kind of reacted to it. So anyway, uh, I just wanted to throw that out there as an update. And, um, you know, good news, some good news there. Uh, but for this show, for this episode, uh, we talked about, um, <laughs> we talked about terror tells in the last one. And today we're talking about tales of terror. And it's actually the first issue, issue number one, um, from Eclipse Comics. Now, Tales of Terror number one was released in July of 1985, and it was written by Stephen R. Bissett, Bill Pearson. It's actually spelled like Pear, so maybe it's Bill Pearson. Mark Wheatley, Eric Yarber, Buzz Dixon, and then you have artists Mike Gustavich, Nicholas Koenig, Mark Wheatley, Bill Ray, and Attilo Micheluzzi. But before we actually get into this issue which is an anthology style comic um and i've got several issues and i I, this is kind of one of this is obviously you know outside of the (laughs) comics go to you know uh, the whatever um and it wasn't in magazine form uh they just by this point in time you know you still had i think some like lingering uh, approved by the comics code uh comics um that weren't magazines or, or yeah so you still had well you had that but you also had horror comics that were comic books that weren't in magazine form um not going by the comics code because at that point they had said hey why don't you go fuck yourself we'll do, write whatever we want to write so uh this is one of those um but a little bit before we get into it, we'll get into a little bit about Eclipse Comics history. So Eclipse Comics uh, was an American comic book publisher, one of several independent publishers during the 1980s and early 1990s. Now, the company was founded as Eclipse Enterprises by brothers Jan and Dean Mullaney in 1977. Uh, Eclipse published one of the first original graphic novels and the first to be sold through the new direct market of comic book stories. Uh, Saber, I guess, is it how you say it? Saber, slow fade of an endangered species by Don McGregor and Paul uh, Galassi. Galassi is probably more correct to say Galassi. Published in August of 1978, it led to a 14-issue spinoff series for Eclipse. McGregor went on to write two additional early graphic novels for Eclipse, each set in contemporary New York City and starring interracial buddy Private Eyes, Ted Denning, and Bob uh, Rainier. Detectives, Inc., A Remembrance of Threatening Green from 1980 with artist Marshall Rogers and Detective, Inc., sorry, Detectives, plural, Inc., A Terror of Dying Dreams from 1985 with artist Gene Colan, who would become a frequent collaborator. The company had early success in the anthology magazine Eclipse and color comic Eclipse Monthly. Okay, so it was actually a magazine beforehand uh, from 81 to 83. Maybe I should pull those up because I totally somehow missed that line as well. Sorry. So with uh, it had the magazine and the color comic Eclipse Monthly as well 
as with the detective series Miss Tree by Max Allen Collins. Creator, uh, creators whose early work appears in Eclipse publication include uh, Chuck Austin, Donna Barr, Dan uh, Brereton, Brereton, Chuck Dixon, uh, James Hudnall, Scott McLeod, Peter Milligan, Tim Truman, and Chris Ware. Veterans published by Eclipse include Steve Englehart, Don McGregor, Gene Cohen, and Mark Evanier. The, public, uh, the company published Alan Moore's series, Miracle Man, which isn't really credited to Alan Moore. <laughs> it's, um, how did they credit? I have two of the, I have two of the volumes and now, and I don't, I don't know where I put them, but it's not credited to Alan Moore. Um, I can't remember what the details of that were. Maybe it'll come around one day. Um, but it's credited to like the, the previous author or like the previous I should have looked it up, I, I, but I didn't think about that. Uh, but yeah, there's a whole story within that too. But I don't. I'm not going to get into that uh, today. But uh, so during during the early 1980s, Eclipse moved several times uh, from 81 Delaware Street in Staten Island, New York, to 295 Austin Street in Columbia, Missouri, and then to the small towns of uh, Gurneyville, I guess, and later Forestville in Sonoma County, California. Beginning in Missouri, Eclipse expanded operations under editor Kat Uranwode. Uh, I don't know how to say her name. I apologize. Who was married to Eclipse co-founder Dean Mullaney from 1987 to 1993. With Kat as editor-in-chief during a period of expanding attention to the art form, Eclipse published many innovative works and championed creators' rights in a field in which, that, which at the time barely respected them. Uh, during Kat's tenure... Eclipse published superhero titles including Miracle Man by Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, The Rocketeer by Dave, Steeman, uh, Dave Stevens, and Zot by Scott McCloud, and also brought out graphic novels featuring uh, opera adaptations such as The Magic Flute by P. Craig Russell and children's literature such as an adaptation of The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. In 1985, Cat and cartoonist Trina Robbins co-wrote the Eclipse book Women and the Comics on the history of female comic strip and comic book creators. As the first book on the subject, its publication was covered in the mainstream press in addition to the fan press. Um, they actually became the first, I think, comic book company to put out com- uh, trading cards. In the, so, was, And here's kind of the bit on that. It's like during the 80s, Eclipse brought out a new line of non-fiction, non-sports trading cards uh, edited by Cat. Like I said, you're Ron Wode. I don't know. <laughs> Again, uh, controversial political subjects such as the Iran-Contra scandal and the savings and loan crisis, the AIDS epidemic, and the Kennedy assassination, as well as true crime accounts of serial killers, mass murderers, the mafia, organized crime are covered in these card sets. That is insane to me and also hilarious in kind of a dark way, but won't go there. Um so in 1988, in partnership with Viz Communications and Studio Proteus, Eclipse published some of the earliest English-translated Japanese manga, such as Area 88, Mai, the Psychic Girl, and The Legend of... Uh, I, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to... Kamui? Kamai? Kamai? I don't know. Anyway, with the success, I went to a private Christian school. Remember that. So that's why I don't know. Because they didn't care about spelling. They only cared about, uh, you know, scriptures. Uh, and not even pronouncing those correctly. With the success of these titles, though, the manga line was expanded. So now we get to the decline. 
which was in 1986, eclipsed most uh, eclipse lost most of its back issue stock in a flood. This event, along with the repercussions of Mulaney and Romwood's divorce in the mid 90s. Uh, collapse of the direct market distribution system caused the company to cease operations in 1994 and file for bankruptcy in 1995. The company's intellectual property rights were later acquired by Todd McFarlane. Mulaney also attributed the company's demise to a problematic contract with the book publisher HarperCollins. Eclipse's last publication was its spring 1993 catalog, which was a complete bibliography of its publications. So, Eclipse the Magazine, or simply Eclipse, was a black-and-white comics anthology magazine published by Eclipse Comics in 1981 to 1983. The magazine introduced several new characters in series, including uh, Coyote, Miss Tree, and Masked Man, that would get published in collections and new series by Eclipse and others. Many of the features from Eclipse were carried over into the color anthology Eclipse Monthly, which ran from August 83 to July of 84. So, some of the features were... Uh, Coyote by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers, Miss Tree by Max Allen Collins and Terry Beatty, Masked Man by B.C. Boyer, Static by Steve Ditko, Dope by Sax uh, Romier, adapted by Trina Robbins, and Ragamuffins by Don McGregor and Gene Colan. So they had eight issues total is what it looks like here. So, And then you get to Eclipse Monthly, which actually had ten issues. So this was a full-color comics anthology title published from 83 to 84 by Eclipse Comics. An attempt by Eclipse to revive the comics anthologies of the Golden Age comic books, Eclipse Monthly, was the successor to Eclipse uh, Black and White Anthology Eclipse Magazine, which was published. We already went through that. So some of the features here were Captain Quick and Fousey by Marshall Rogers, Rio by Doug Wildey, Static, again, by Steve Ditko, Mass Man by B.C. Boyer, Dope, and Ragamuffins, too. Um... But yeah, so there's not much information there. Let's see if we can maybe. No, never mind. You can get more, I, I guess. Yeah. And it's actually kind of all the same thing. It's just, I was going to say you can go to like comics.org and comic book database and all that stuff, but it's really kind of all the same information. So I need to dig around more and see if there's more of an extensive sort of history of that, um, you know, to talk about and further uh, issues of this series that we might bring up here. But, um, yeah, so that's what all that is. But, um, yeah, I guess without any further uh, ado, we can go ahead and get into the very first issue of Tales of Terror. Our first story is Queen for a Day. It's written by Steve Bissett from the painting by Eric Vincent. Art by Michael Gustavich. Letters by Carrie Spiegel. Colors by Steve Olaf and Sam Parsons. We've got a beach scene with a family of three. We've got a Caucasian male and an African-American woman. Uh, they're a couple and they have a daughter there. I'm only pointing out the races because you know, the times in which this came out, I feel like that was deliberate. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, I, I feel like it was deliberate to, you know, just diversify what you see in comic books, you know, the fringe books like this and EC and Harvey and stuff, they've been known to push. I, I hate to use even the word push because it's not aggressive. It's just to show the normality of uh, different races and different types of relationships. And, you know, it, I think it's a good thing. 
it's amazing. Uh, so, and, and the only reason I'm even giving a disclaimer is because the internet uh, and Twitter and everyone gets angry if you say anything about anything ever. So uh, I'm just saying, I think it's cool. And I think that the artists and writers um, made this diverse on purpose. Um, and that's cool. So their daughter says, and there's also a dog out, yeah, on the beach, uh, chasing some eagle, seagulls out by the water. And the daughter says, Mom, well, I have to write about my summer vacation for school this fall. What will I say? Mom says, well, I always had to, dear, when I was your age. Don't worry, you've got plenty of time to work it out before school starts. Now our narration begins. Where to begin? How I spent my summer vacation began like any other. The sun, the sea, a month away from it all. A a cabin we rented by the shore. Quite inexpensive, really. All a woman and her family could ask for. All a summer can offer ahead of us. Sand, sea, sun, and the time to enjoy it all. And by night... Charles and I rekindled the fires that had first brought us together. Now we see some silhouettes, like very thin panels um, of some kind of <laughs> some kind of um, interlocking uh, silhouettes. A family should get off alone at least once a year, spend some time together. Mommy, can I have another sandwich? Mommy, why does Dad sleep so much? Mommy, there's bees in the jelly jar. Mommy! get closer another panel of some intimacy here it's important to savor the good times with your loved ones while while you can you just never know the little girl shooing the bees out of the jelly jar shoot get out of there mommy they'll sting me shh you'll wake daddy princess when the storm clouds move in now they're all up and peering out now instead of storm clouds what we actually see um is giant, giant bees attacking. The mom is stabbing one. It's awesome. She's stabbing one. It's all very close up, so you don't really see what's happening until the main panel showing the title. But you have the daughter, like, wrapping her arms around the mom. You have the mom taking the the umbrella that, you know, jabs into the sand, and she's stabbing one of these bees. And then you have the bees, they're, they're stabbing the dad um, over and over. And then the mom's uh, narration says and completely ruin the entire summer vacation now they're carrying off the dad and he has just got these giant bee stings all over his body he's being carried off with bags in tow by a separate bee they're carrying him off leaving the the uh, wife and daughter and the dog behind i i haven't any answers none at all i didn't have any for the police when they arrived i don't have any now for myself perhaps There'd be some small comfort if I had some answer. They didn't believe that there was such a thing, though it was there for all to see. Nor did they believe that it had come with others, that that the others had taken away my Charles. And in the end, still disbelieving, still tearing at me, me, for an answer, they bundled it up and hid it from their eyes, uh, listed Charles as a missing person. I, I made quite a scene. I vented all my anger and loss at the police, making it easier for them to dismiss my story as hysteria at the disappearance of my husband, my Charles. We see another panel of, well, I'll just say it now. The panels of the embracing and the intimate moments are immediately, uh, something is wrong. Uh, I mean, 
if you're looking at the book, you know what it is. But for story's sake, I'll keep it. I'll keep it ambiguous because it's clearly you do see a, a man's face and you see uh, some very strange shapes and arms and whatnot. We'll get there. They dispose of the evidence. Such things cannot be. There's no room for such things in their files. Nor was there room for me, my family, my Charles. There was to be no investigation, no search, no answers, no Charles. Our month stretched into two. We stayed at the cabin, my princess and I, in hopes that we might find Charles or that he might return one night and wake us up from such an impossible and desolate nightmare. Princess, the daughter, slept next to me or not at all. She had mercifully obliterated the memory of what had happened, but there was no healing the loss of her father or smoothing the fearful crease in her brow when she would look up at the goals and wonder if they were truly goals, where to begin. Now, Princess, the daughter, is saying, Daddy's never going to come back, is he? Doesn't he love us anymore? Won't he come and take us away from here? Mother, Princess... Daddy still loves you. He'll come back if he can. The nightmare began, Princess. But he can't. He can't. He'll never come back. Never. Never. We get another uh, eerie, intimate panel. We're picking up from the last narration since the nightmare began, where most nightmares end. And then you have the daughter looking ahead saying, Daddy? 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 There are people in my life that would have paid money to never hear me say that over and over. But the narration says, at the moment, picking up, so I'm just going to continue here. Uh, The nightmare began where most nightmares end. At the moment, awakening. And as Princess is saying, Daddy, 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 here comes Charles walking in the door shirtless with his bag and wearing jeans. Now, Princess and the mother are running, of course, towards him. He's not wearing jeans, sorry. He's wearing, like, cut-off jean shorts. <laughs> um, times. The times. They have a changed. And they done a been changed. So, you know, the dog, they're all running up to him. They're very excited, and she's... The mom is just looking at him, and she's like, Charles? And he just looks kind of blank-faced. The police were happy to close their files and wash their hands of the matter. They asked Charles no questions, and he gave them no answers. Princess and Buttons, the dog, bathed in his return without qualm. The pain and tears of the prior weeks borne away on the sea breezes that sent frisbees flying from Daddy's hands into eager canine jaws or hands still padded with a touch of baby fat. They had no need for answers. For them, Daddy had come back, and that was enough. For me, there was no smile, no kiss, no loving touch, no acknowledgement of the horror, no discussion of what had happened, no questions. No answers. And I feared. No Charles. Whatever this was that peered out of his eyes, spoke with his tongue, wore his flesh, and used his name, it was not Charles. The next day, there was to be a walk down the beach that day. My insistence that Princess stay with me was slapped into oblivion, and I was to be left out of the day's activities. I was ordered to stay back and pack. For the next morning's departure... For our return home, he, he had never hit me before. In the overcast heat of the day, my pain throbbed with the slap of the ocean waves. My anger swelled and stretched taut as the bruise on my cheek. By the time 
Charles shambled home. My night air had grown cold and brittle. It crackled with the sting of my tears. Now this panel is showing Charles with the daughter and the basket, like the lunch basket. He's got the daughter over his shoulder who seems to be passed out. And he's going back to the house where uh, the mother is waiting. And as he's entering, he says, Did you do as I told you? And then we have another intimate panel of what looks like a scorpion stinger. We've got a few of these, and I'm not really sure. They're all kind of the same. They're very ambiguous. Now, the little girl, he has laid down on, I guess, a bed. He says, I told you to pack. The mother says, fuck you, Charles. Another intimate, terrifying panel. I told you to pack. Damn you. I'm not going anywhere with you, and neither is she. Where have you been? What's happened to you? Intimate panel. Pack it yourself, you bastard. I can't even believe you. You hit me, you fucking bastard. Tell me where you've been. I'm not letting Princess out of my sight again until you tell me where you've been and what's going on. You fucking tell me. Tell me. Now she's punched him in the face at this point. We see another intimate panel, but now it looks like the shape of a human with these three spikes going into it and its stomach. Tell me. Now the basket that he was carrying falls over and their dog its lifeless body falls out onto the floor. What? Where? You, oh, Lord. What have you done? Oh, no, not... Princess? Princess? You couldn't have. You you couldn't. As she's about to approach him, he slaps her across the head and says, I told you to pack. Very calmly. Now, before we go on to the sort of next events, it... I have to say, it is confusing because she sees the dead dog... And she says, oh, no, not princess. Princess, you couldn't have. But she's talking to the daughter before and calling her princess, you know. So, but, you know, there's also kind of like a... (sighs) Actually, you know what? I think I'm going to wait. I'll wait till we finish. I'll get to this story and then go back on the sort of alternate way of viewing this um, because it's... Yeah, it's important, I think. As Charles slaps the mother, in the windows in the background, there's there's one single window visible. Um, and there's like a mound, in the, you know, of sand or whatever in the background. And it, so this narration says, the, the wave breaks, sweeping me into the abyss. Dark secrets lovingly laid to rest by an angelic child and her doting shade of a father are uncovered by the slithering tide. Now these arachnid-looking arms are coming out of the sand. Pearly white splitting asunder, glistening spawn make a sand shift exit. Their chittering tickles the night. Their buzzing fills the house. And even as I awaken, I can still hear it. Oh, Charles. Now we get another intimate panel of something I can't really quite make out here. Princess? We have a... A mother is kind of walking around the house. Another intimate panel of a man with spikes all around. (laughs) Of a silhouette, rather. It's also worth noting, after almost every one of these intimate silhouettes of just ambiguity and spikes and human forms, there's also a black panel. Like a straight, like very narrow, thin black panel. So it's interesting. So now... We have the mother looking on the scene. 
that I'll describe. She says, Princess? No. No, it can't be. Oh, Princess! So we see the dead dog and what what is the daughter covered in a layer of something yellow um like a almost like a blanket but completely wrapped in it like it's more of like a substance but it this bed that they're laying on is surrounded by these giant bees so charles says but it is it's the night our princess comes of age my dear you didn't do as i told you to diana dear never you mind though i did it myself i've packed up all our belongings and i've burned them down on the beach in the morning the tide will carry the ashes away and no one will know we were ever here i've already disposed of the car the hive made good use of it actually a very functional egg chamber once it's properly this this isn't real where where do they come from of course it's real real enough to take me away from all this domestic bliss and awaken my new self it's doing the same for our little princess even as you watch you won't recognize her at first but once the flesh reasserts itself you'd never know the difference you are part of it the hive dear it has always been here it will always be here it will use us to reestablish a new hive and then it will move on to do the same elsewhere why why charles why us our princess you killed their queen dear the hive would die unless a new queen were born they've fed her much finer food than a drone like myself merited you're to see our little girl come of age my love and i promise you she'll not be out of your sight for a moment i can also promise you one other thing my love you had hopes that this vacation would bring us all closer together now we're seeing this cocoon like thing well that it will before this night is over we will all have become much much closer than any family has ever been and in ways you wouldn't have dreamed possible the cocoon is open and a bee is emerging from it but it has six human arms the buzzing swallows the sound of charles's voice and again the abyss beckons and mercifully i am gone now this bee is crawling out from the cocoon and this is all on the bed where the daughter was laying uh I'm just going to tell you, I wouldn't imagine you'd be listening to this if you were really faint of heart or details or whatever, but I'm I, <laughs> maybe I should have given the disclaimer beforehand. Uh, this next part is real fucked, so just a warning. My crawl back up from the abyss is slow and painful. My body is numb, useless, and my mind can barely make the climb by itself. What stirs me, forces me on, is the damning echo of Charles's voice. Your daughter and I shall couple together. The drone must fertilize the newborn queen for the good of the spawning hive. Now we see a panel of, in the foreground, Diana, the mother, laying on the ground being stung by these bees in the background on the bed we see charles the father naked clearly having sex with the reborn daughter that's like mostly bee 
with the human arms, procreating. And we also see that so all these intimate, ambiguous panels are of the father and daughter, uh, daughter as the bee, though that doesn't make it better, I guess. Makes it more horrific. Uh, it's, it's them procreating. And when the dance is over, and I have served my purpose, the newborn queen will take me in her arms, and our flesh shall be joined as one. Then, my beloved, our queen will embrace you as a daughter has never before cradled her own mother. She will caress you and calm you. And when the time is correct, she will lovingly pour the fruit of our labors into your body. You will be the womb of the new hive. You will warm them and protect them. And when they finally hatch, your flesh will serve as their first meal. We shall be closer than any family has ever been, my dear. We do see a panel of the daughter bee approaching the mother, having gotten off the bed and clearly has been feasting upon the father. The narration continues. We will be one with our queen. One with the hive, for the good of the hive, and we shall be as timeless and eternal as the hive has ever been. It's important to savor the good times w- with your loved ones while while you can. You just never know. It's been one hell of a vacation. So, shit fire, as some people in the South would say. Uh, wow. I saw that it said, uh, the illustrated horror magazine for mature readers on the front under the first issue exclamation. And I just wasn't really prepared for, and there's more stuff in this book. There's more. This is the beginning. Uh, <laughs> there are more stories. Um, but yeah, I was more prepared for those after reading this first one. You get a good buffer here. Um, yeah, this is pretty sick. It's pretty, um, and I mean, it's pretty, yeah, that's, it's dark stuff. It's very dark stuff. And, uh, you know, it's pretty wild, but you know, this is a very effective horror comic or horror it, like story, a short story, you know? Uh, so what I was going to, what I was alluding to earlier with like another way of looking at this. So if you've read the book, um, kind of like look back over it because the reason I was questioning the princess thing is because every time she refers to the daughter, when she's talking directly to the daughter, she says to her, she calls her dear, but it's, I don't know. It's, this might be a stretch, but if you've read this again, please let's talk about it because I don't know. So when the police come to investigate and they don't, and they're, you know, they see the giant bee that she has impaled, um, and they're investigating it and they're trying to, and then that's when she's talking about like, Oh, they're denying it ever happened. Um, that kind of thing. And I just, she talks about how, you know, in our month stretched into two, we stayed in a cabin, my princess and I, in hopes that we might find Charles, 
Uh, then she says, Princess slept next to me or not at all. She had mercifully obliterated, obliterated the memory of what had happened, but there was no healing the loss of her father or soothing the fearful crease in her brow when she would look up at the gulls and wonder if they were truly gulls. So we're talking about seagulls, the birds. Um, the next panel, where to begin? So this is where the daughter says, Daddy's never going to come back, is he? Doesn't he love us anymore? Won't he come back and take us away from here? Well, to the left of her is the dog up on the table. The mother, Diana, says, Princess, Daddy still loves you. He'll come back if he can. Um, and then again, I don't know. It, it's just hard because then you get to the point where she she refers to the dog, I guess, as buttons. It's just, I don't know. I had this theory, and I guess it's just, it doesn't hold much weight. It's a stretch that, like... And I guess it was more of a theme in my mind that like not the the dad's asleep and when he comes back he's completely like out of touch. The mom only cares about the dog because when she refers to princess she's talking about the dog. When she sees the dog fall dead out of the basket, she says princess how she's not talking about like you know what I mean? She's it's when you see the dog and she refers to it as princess like how could you? No, no. Um and she, you know, she didn't say buttons and then no not princess because you're you're not seeing the dead body of princess you're seeing the dead body of the dog when she says that and then she's like princess how could you and then she goes after so like i guess she's assuming that because he killed the dog he also killed the daughter but then again when she says princess no it can't be when the daughter's covered in the cocoon thing like the dead dog is laying next to her so am i thought probably and then you don't see the dead dog again um which would be buttons i just it's just weird to me i, I don't know that's uh maybe thinking too deep about it but um when she said you know that about princess look, looking up at the seagulls and wondering if they were actual seagulls well the only person we've seen looking at not person but the only thing we've seen looking at seagulls was the dog chasing the seagulls so i don't know i feel like there could be Oh, some kind of twist on a theme of like, you know, uh, parents sort of not paying attention to their kids and being on vacation. And I, I don't know what you call it, neglect or something like that. Um, but again, that might be over the top. I might, be, again, could be digging way too much into it. But that was what was very, very cool and interesting about this story on top of just the sheer darkness and gore of it. I, I say gore. It's not even really that much gore. It's it's the um, I mean when I first saw the the panel of the dad like on top sexually like having sex with the daughter B like hybrid that I was like holy fuck that is not what I was expecting and then you get the panels that were all separated initially of like the intimate things kind of lined up and they're still pretty like ambiguously arranged but like you get more of like you're seeing the daughter on top of the dad but you're looking at it sideways so it's almost like they're side by side but i think what you're supposed to be seeing is that like the bee is on top of the dad and like devouring it but they're kind of going back and forth so you're seeing the process of her eating him because you do see his arm with like chunks out of it and his leg hanging over off the side with like blood and stuff so then she's going to i guess implant both of like a, like his seed that he has just impregnated her with and her egg i guess that the embryo into this mother 
to give birth to the queen is kind of worth. Anyway, it's it's a very gross and dark, um, you know, story here. Really, just to put it scientifically, fucked up. Um, but that's kind of like it's a little over the top version of what you expect to get <laughs> from like uh, some of like I say pre code. This is obviously not pre code, but like. You know, you want to see where they'll push the boundaries. And that's what is, it's one of the main interesting parts of a lot of the pre-code comics, um, too, is like, how far will they push it? The violence and the gore, the sexuality, um, you know, all those things. It's like, where, where would they take it? Uh, and so this is kind of, to me, like an homage to, those old stories and like where maybe they wanted to push things and sometimes they would go there obviously they didn't use the language that this book uses but um yeah as far as this first story wow uh i'm talking about dark so queen for a day uh as far as an effective horror story goes absolutely effective um (laughs) i know i don't have an effective scale that i go by um Let's see. I guess I could start one. So how effective is this horror story? Is it, is it as effective as a B-brainwashed father uh, having sex with his now B-hybrid human daughter? No? Okay, well, then it's not as effective. That Maybe that could be the scale of, like, you know, how many B-fuckings are we rating this? One out of five, two out of five. You know, we'll go that way. A five B-fucking scale. Um and go from there so you know with the next story maybe it'll hold up but you know i feel like that scale isn't going to hold up because i'm not comfortable continuing with that so uh you know we'll see but god god damn that (laughs) that's um uh really i'll stop i'm sorry you're probably tired of me being like okay we get it you thought it was disturbing time to move on and you're right we are going to move on we're going to move on to the next story which is called The Vampire Sting. Even at high noon, the atmosphere is somber and dank, as the small steam engine winds its way through the mist-shrouded forest to a gray town on the border of Kuladar. But the elegant traveler inside is oblivious to his surroundings. From all I could learn, he's already decrepit, dead but too stubborn to stop breathing, intent upon his own devious schemes. From the cosmopolitan capital of Bucharest, Rautescu, the lawyer, has been summoned to write the last will and testament of the wealthy count who rules this land. An attendant on the train, Rukar, last stop. What? Oh, yes. Here, carry my case, the attendant says. Carry your own case. And the lawyer, law, as they call it, actually, I misread that. It doesn't say lawyer. It says lawyer. Rodescu, I guess is his name. I don't understand. Whatever. Uh, he, he says to the uh, worker, he says, peasant. Now we come upon a man uh, either replacing or applying horseshoes to a horse. And this lawyer, Rodescu points to the man uh, doing this he says you there coachman I'll need a private carriage and a driver at once just take a few minutes to hitch the horses sir how far is the castle of Count Kuladar the castle you're not going there are you of course I am 
Why else would I ask? Not many people go to the castle, and almost nobody comes back. How interesting. As if anybody would want to return to this stinking hole. Well, his money is good, but his manners leave something to be desired. I'm actually kind of thrown off a little bit by this interchange, because I feel like there's a panel missing or something, like, because the, um, Rodescu, the lower, he, um, he's, like, responding to himself, because he says, you know, in response, he says, how interesting, as if anybody would want to return to the sinkhole, then he says, well, his money is good, but his manners leave something to be desired, and then the coachman replies to that, finally. He'll get his come up and set Castle Kuladar, I'll wager. I don't, I, again, I feel like there's, there's panels missing or something. I don't know. Uh, well, we move along. We've got this carriage moving across the mountain. Um, so Rudescu, this lower, is thinking to himself as their carriage is going across the mountain, these yokels are insufferable with their sordid folk tales, but I'm not surprised. Men of my stature are surely scarce in these parts. From Rukar, the coach carries Redescu through the Bran Pass, following the river Argus between the mountains. Might not be Argus, it might be Argus or Args. I have no idea. Again, private school. Beyond the pass, after several hours over the rutted dirt road, the forest thins enough to reveal small crossroads in the edge of a fire-scarred valley. Village of Arefu, sir. This is as far as I go. Where's the castle? I told you I wanted. You'll have to hire a wagon. The innkeeper will take care of you. I'll be returning to Rukar in an hour or so after the horses have had a rest. If you change your mind. Routescue. Routescue? Whatever. The lore. Lawer. I'm just gonna start saying lawyer. That's stupid. Lawer? He enters a tavern. He's greeted by the bartender. Before he's greeted by the bartender, he's slamming his cane. Now, he is wearing a tux and a top hat, and he's slamming his cane on the bar, uh, annoyingly, saying, Service here! Where's the proprietor of this dismal establishment? So, of course, here comes the proprietor. He says, Good day to you, sir. Caught me napping, you did. How can I help you? I'm told I'll need a wagon to reach Castle Kuladar. I'm eager to leave at once. I would do see uh, a female figure kind of coming down the stairs, watching this interaction take place. We go outside, uh, looking at this bar, tavern, whatever, and the um, proprietor says, The castle? Oh, sir, I'd advised against it. So the lawyer says, Not you, too. Now this woman comes downstairs. There's evil in that place, sir. It's dangerous to go there, lawyer says. What superstitious nonsense is this? Is it not the residence of the Count? Oh, yes, sir. It is, but no one from these parts will go anywhere near it. I'll drive myself, then. I'm not afraid of your local folk tales, whatever they are. So the proprietor is walking outside, and he says, opening the the front door of the tavern, he says, The wagon can be ready in a few minutes, but it's already dusk, and you'll find it difficult to follow the road in the dark. My time is valuable. Bring the wagon at once. So the proprietor calls for Morgo. Morgo is a tall, lumbering man. Well, I say lumbering. He's literally carrying an armful of lumber, but he's very tall. The proprietor says, Hitch the wagon for this gentleman, and be quick about it. Now the proprietor's talking to the lawyer at the bar, and he says, Something to eat first. 
I've got a hot stew on the oven. It will only take a minute. Lawyer. Sounds dreadful, but I am hungry. Bring it with a mug of your best ale. Now here we're seeing, walking up the stairs uh, from, I guess, a basement, we see uh, a blonde woman in a blue dress carrying a bucket. And you make sure the utensils are clean. Now this woman in the blue dress is pulling out a chair for this uh, lawyer. And she says, sit here, sir. I'll serve you. As he sits, he says, well, you're a delight to the eye, at least, my girl. And she says, oh. Now, they drew her in these panels to have her uh, cleavage really kind of busting out there, a little bit over the top. Um, But, you know, these was the times. Now, in the background, we do have the proprietor and another man uh, chatting, another man who is... uh, has not been seen in this issue. He walks up in the background. I say he's not been seen. He looks like the coachman from earlier, but as I go back and forth, I don't think it's the same character, so it's hard to say. But he walks in and says, Good day to you, uh, Parlery. He says, Hello, Freenend. Haven't seen you in weeks. What's news from Rukar? So we go back to our lawyer and the young woman. He says, You can't possibly be relegated to that ugly pair. She says, they're my parents, and you're very rude. How would you like to accompany me to the castle? You can show me the way, and I'll reward you with a silver coin. Now she's handing him some soup, she says. It's not possible, sir, but I could join you later, upstairs, if you stay the night. And she walks up the stairs. So now the proprietor is bringing a drink to the lawyer. I've changed my mind. Perhaps it would be better to spend the night here before going on, the proprietor says. A wise decision, sir. And uh, the woman who walked down the stairs earlier, who I believe is the wife of the proprietor, it's a comfortable bed, and Mina will make you a fire for you to take away the chill. And the lawyer thinks to himself, I'm counting on it. So we get back to the man at the bar, the proprietor, and he says, I'll be getting back on the road then, Pothery. Any outgoing mail this trip? No, nothing. Another beer before you go? No more for me, thanks. I want to be on the other side of the pass before it gets too dark. Don't know how you folks can sleep well at night. So close to that fiend. Nah, he doesn't bother us here. He pays us to run this place. Just Molly and me and Mina. And Morgo. Only those who trespass on the grounds of the castle have reason to fear. Now as this... I guess he's like a postman? I don't know, because he asks for outgoing mail. Anyway, he walks out the front door, and he runs into this Morgo, uh, hulking creature that was carrying the lumber earlier and he just goes huh and then we move on we have the proprietor and his wife at the front door you know saying safe journey freenand freenand and the lawyer is walking up the steps he gets up the steps and sure enough mina is tending the fire in his room and he's thinking to himself why shouldn't i enjoy myself i'll just add it to the cost of my fee Now he's looking out the window at the castle on the horizon. He says, why, that's the castle right there. It looks close enough to reach on foot. What about it, girl? I was led to believe it was still quite a distance to the castle, but it is as close as the crow flies. But the trail winds about in these hills. Wasn't there something else on your mind tonight? Now she's kind of like getting all cozy up to him with her boobs out and whatnot. So now he's getting, uh, what do they call it? What do the young kids call it these days? Necking. They're necking. And heavy petting, to put it explicitly. Perverts. So he says, 
That castle doesn't look so forbidding to me. I think those rumors about the Count are ridiculous, she says. Of course they are. The Count is a harmless old gentleman, but it doesn't matter. He's not really expecting you at all. Now we see some sharp teeth showing in her mouth, and the proprietor and his wife are entering the room, and the proprietor says, We summoned you here, Master Radescue. And we also see Mina uh, biting into the neck and pulling of the flesh of Radescue's neck as he looks horrified. And we end on Radescue, bloody, lying on the ground, I guess dead, or waiting to turn into a vampire. And uh, Nina and her parents, the proprietor and his wife, are all sitting at a table very casually. And the proprietor is saying, Next time, let's advertise for a young governess. So, well, not quite as uh, shocking as the first. Uh, That's okay. This was a fun little story um, about a very snooty uh, rich guy, you know, just coming along. And I don't know what happened to this, uh, you know, trying to get back to his name, uh, Freenand. I don't know what happened to him. He just kind of like he he got walked out the front door to that lumbering guy. And he was just like, uh, so I don't know if it was like he was going to be killed I, I don't know that was kind of a weird a weird panel that they showed there as opposed to just letting him leave but you know then you don't follow up so who knows um maybe he was the cattleman who was going to drive um the lawyer but it's weird I'm, i get like when i'm looking back at some of these panels i'm like maybe it was supposed to be but like the guy who looks like that is wearing completely different clothes Like, the clothes are the same shape, basically, but he's wearing completely different colors. So that's where I'm thrown off. So I don't know if this was an art deal where it's just unclear, and this is the person that's supposed to take him. I I, I still don't know what the role is here. They keep, I don't know, it's weird. That that part of the story is very unclear to me. Of Like, okay, I guess they were going to kill his, who knows, who knows? I don't know. I don't fucking know. And it doesn't end like that like you know you don't you don't get the end of the story so it's one of those things where it's like i guess just who knows uh anyway uh yeah i i liked the fact that like you know it's kind of a um mm, from dusk till dawn or any kind of like a vampire sort of story where it's like oh well just rest here and we'll seduce you and you know that kind of thing um so but i like that like the parents were in on it too and all that stuff so um it's a it's a very again very short very simple you know story uh, so not that there's not a lot to really dig into unfortunately to like you know analyze but uh, it is what it is it was a fun story to read I'll say that and um, the art is fantastic and I meant to say that for the first um, for the first story as well I mean good lord the uh, queen for a day yeah the art there is amazing. But this this uh, vampire sting is written by Bill Pearson and pencils and lettering by Nicholas Koenig with inks by Del uh, Barris and colors by Steve Olaf and Sam Parsons and it looks fantastic. So, and I read the credits for the other one, but uh, yeah, wanted to give those away too. So um, we'll go on to, I mean, this next one. It's. Well, and I haven't, I shouldn't even really need to give, you know, like a warning 
because this is horror comics, but I guess because a lot of the comics really, even if they're pre-code, aren't that crazy. Um, this one pushes those brown, those boundaries. And again, it, it is more modern. Um, so, you know, the eighties were all about, uh, taking it to the limit, uh, pushing it to the limit, uh, being at the limit and then reaching beyond the limit as the song goes. But, uh, this one, I don't know. This one's pretty dark. So I'm just telling you, if you're easily, uh, offend, not offended even, but just, you know, super sensitive, you might not like this story and that's okay. There's a lot of different interpret, not interpretations, but ways you can run with it. I'm just going to go through it. Dreams are life, and dreams, like life, are sewn in bewildering patterns. Fabrics are woven from past happenstance, pulling on thread of eternal origin. Susie Dreams by Mark Wheatley, with lettering and coloring assisted by Catherine Mayer. Now, there's a lot of nudity, and anytime there's like a romantic kind of scene, uh, or intimate kind of scene, just assume that they're, they're naked, because uh, that's like the second panel that we see is this naked woman. But I'm not going to go out of my way every single time to be like, and there's nipples. But uh, here we are. She dreams of a special sensual man. He's a wizard and a king. Now she's galloping in the woods, clothed with this kind of knight in shining armor. He's got, well, he's got gray hair, but, um, you know, it's really swoopy. And he's got a great jawline, a little bit of a little bit of a dimple in his chin just you know that classic uh old school everyone's white type of uh type of storytelling uh, i'm not saying that's a good or bad thing i'm just saying that's the way it was a man who will protect anyone he loves and the love sweet love in the scatterlight forest she is subject to tender caresses playful adventure willful advances sensitive union Susie dreams experience as wide as imagination as deep as desire or sometimes as poor as a pale grave void now uh, yes they are making love against a tree on a pretty like I mean I would say 45 degree angle slope I don't know I don't know I've never experienced this desire but I, it doesn't look comfortable. In fact, this man, it doesn't even look like his penis is even, I don't know. He's kind of just standing over her. And now I'm actually kind of, well, never mind. The way the next panel goes, uh, we'll just go with it. This, we'll just say this is the knight in shining armor. But seriously, I don't know what's happening in this sex scene because they're just standing awkwardly. If you have the issue, go look at it. The art's fantastic. I'm not, you know, I'm not even criticizing the art. I'm just saying. Maybe there were rules, I guess, as far as like, well, you can't have, you know, the way it should be. Anyway, whatever. Moving along. So it said, experience as wide as imagination, as deep as desire, or sometimes as poor as a pale gray void. But any of it better than the reality. Now we have a uh, a brutish uh, red-haired man wearing a black t-shirt, and he is just backhanding, backfisting, really, the shit out of this 
uh, out of this woman. And he's screaming at her, you worthless whore, you bitch. And he's punching her again as she screams, little asshole. He punches her again. Now she's falling on the ground. Talk. Quack. Now she's begging, please tell me his name. He kicks her. And it's just like, I, I'm telling you, I, I it's fucking nuts. I, I mean, I'm not saying like they shouldn't have printed this because sensitive people. I'm just saying like they're depicting domestic violence and it's awful. And it's hard to read. And it should be. So, and I also think it should be addressed. So, you know, fucking don't at me. Sometimes, uh, you know, I think we're in an age where people should be, uh, you know, able to speak up or have have someone uh, inspire them to speak up. But I don't know that this is the most inspiring tale from the 80s. But I'm just saying, sometimes you got to address real issues. And boy, the art. I have to hand it on the art. And I don't know... I don't know who actually did the art, but I know that Catherine Mayer helped with lettering and coloring. So who knows? They're they're, they're the only ones credited. But so we go back and um, Susie, this is Susie from the dream, and Susie uh, is getting abused here, and she's now on the ground um, crying. And now I can't actually remember if we see her, uh, I guess boyfriend or husband or whoever this the person, this piece of shit that's abusing her is. Um, Anyway, he's got her on the ground. He says, You said Edmund while you were sleeping. Edmund who? Where does he live? Stop bawling! And she's thinking to herself, Oh, please, let him be through. Finish it. Crying ain't gonna help you. The baby screams and the TV sells tampons, all distanced by a sound blind ringing. Her friends told her to hit back, but she couldn't. She thinks to herself, They just don't understand. Get up! I know. Just know. If I hit him, he'd really get mad. Now, this abuser starts to transform in panel into Edmund. But before he turns into Edmund, we're still getting uh, this. Uh, it's her husband. We're still getting his his words. You want me to kick your ass into the kitchen? I asked you for another beer. Which I thought she was sleeping. So I don't, I, I don't know. Is this asshole really going to wake her up and be like, hey, you're asleep. Get me a beer. Oh, by the way, who the fuck is Edmund? Someone just needs to just destroy this guy. Anyway, he says, I asked you for another beer, or won't you even do that for your husband? Sound drains, and she feels light. Hello, my love. Oh, Edmund. Now we see the bright and colorful, strapping young. Uh, not even young. He's Again, he's gray. He's just very handsome. Great jawline. Did I mention the jawline? His cheekbones are also very nice. So, Susie, I want you always... I don't want to go back to Maury, ever. You can have whatever you want here, my love. Why don't you stay? I try. I try to stay, but I don't seem able. Soon you will have the power. Then we'll have eternity. Everything will be all right. Now we see Susie transforming from dream state with her eyes closed and she's smiling really big into uh, real life where she's uh, a little bit more, you know, obviously roughed up. And you have, what are you smiling about? Shit, Susie. Shut that bread up or I will. Now we have, obviously, the baby is crying in the background. I say the baby like we've been introduced to the baby, but there is a baby in the background. Now she is smiling with, like, just crazy glee, uh, lost in her dream world. She says, Mama's here, sweet child. Don't be frightened. The baby continues to cry and hiccup. Maury, Jesus, a man works his ass off for this, for this. Susie's holding the baby, who's continuing to scream, with uh, Maury, I mean, towering over her. 
He just looks like one of the uh, punks from the first or second, I think it's the second Double Dragon game. The one that was like, and it starts off with them punching, um, I can't remember her name, but they punch the girl in the stomach, throw over the shoulder and walk off. That's like how the fucking game starts. And I'm like, you know, how I was, I guess, probably played that for the first time when I was like seven years, six or seven years old. I'm like, holy shit. Um, anyway, this is that guy. My wife plays around. My k- kid cries like a sissy. I can't even watch TV because of that damn noise. No more. You gotta give me a chance. He's scared. He'll stop crying, but he's scared. I'm going out, Susie. I'm gonna get a beer down at Max's. When I get home, I don't want to hear you or that kid making any kind of noise. You read me? Look at this fucking mess. I want this place cleaned up. And he slams the door. He's gone, leaving only the sound of people recorded live on videotape, laughing into the otherwise silent room. Susie staggers into the bedroom, thinking to herself. And now she's lying down with the baby, but she's thinking to herself, he used to be such a sweet man, unsure of himself maybe, but kind and understanding. He was perfect, and he treated me like I was a, a queen. When did we go wrong? When he lost his job last year, or maybe it was when I got pregnant? The odd hours, odd foods, feelings, and moods. She's dealing with uh, some. I'm not. I'm not criticizing the character. I, this makes sense. This is a real thing. I just think it's it's uh, it's a shame that someone thinks of themselves this way uh, because of other people. But uh, it's a very real deal. So we move on again into that same theme. She's thinking to herself, you know, talking about the odd hours, odd moods, feelings, and moods. Um, and being sick, being ugly, swollen and ugly. I was so ugly, so ugly. And then we switch to the fantasy where Edmund and her are toasting and they're wearing just fine uh, garments and they're floating on a cloud eating at a very long dinner table, which we've learned from Batman 89 that that is not a pleasant experience, but uh, we'll go with it. And he's toasting to your beauty. All this for you. And she's thinking, hell is so very far away. Safe, each of us the perfect part of a two-piece puzzle. Here, in this fortress of clouds, protected from worldly fears, nothing can touch her or spoil the beauty of the moment. They're watching the sunrise, literally in the clouds. Here, there is only love. So we go back to reality. She's laying down in bed next to the baby in a dark room. Baby is asleep. Now she's thinking to herself... I must have drifted off. God, I hurt. This time it's bad. I should call someone. But if Maury should find out, I've got to try. Now she's ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. And as the phone is ringing and no one is answering, she's looking at the child and she's thinking, Hello, child. You're so lucky. You can forget. You can smile. And now we get a a, a scattering of different, uh, a couple of characters that she's trying to phone for help that are gallivanting uh, happily in love with flowers and you know happiness and they're smiling and the one guy has a great mustache and gail has uh, bangs and uh you know they're very, just very nicely and gail has bangs and jason has a mustache again jason has a mustache and gail has bangs so she's thinking to herself no answer gail must be out 
Jason is always coming home with flowers and tickets for shows. The ringing continues. And he lets Gail do as she pleases. Why can't Maury be like that? The ringing continues. I taste blood. I've got to call the emergency number. Which is what I would do from the beginning. Okay, that's actually not fair. Again, not fair. Not fair. It's not easy. It's not easy. Especially when you're scared and, like, trapped. I'm See, I'm falling into it right now. I'll admit it. I'm like, just call the cops. Well, you know, sometimes we just have to realize that in some people's minds it's not that simple. So here we go. She finally did. And she says, I guess as I, I'm assuming, obviously, 911. She says, my name is Susan Baltan. I'm hurt and need help. Please come help. My husband will be home soon and he'll hurt me again if... And the voice on the other end says... Easy, miss. Just give me your address. The effort to speak is draining her, but she manages. Good. We'll have someone there shortly. You shouldn't move around. Stay put. I don't know if the door is open. We'll take care of it. I have to get off the line. Would you like me to switch you to someone you can talk to? The talking hurts. I'll be all right. Now she's thinking, hot, very hot. I hurt. I think I will switch more back to uh, dream fantasy mode. And she thinks, cool, cool water. Now, her and Edmund are getting uh, a little more intimate on the beach as the water splashes up onto them uh, on the beach. And also the sand flies into every crevice of their nether regions. But they don't talk about that in the fantasies, do they? Because in Fantasyland, that doesn't happen. The crevices are clean and smooth, but not in real life. So she says, Edmund, you're here. I need you so much to love me and protect me. Edmund says, I need you too. I need your love. Without it, I could not live. Susie, you're so good to me. Not like Maury. You're so perfect. I don't want to lose you. And Edmund says, I won't leave you. And he looks up kind of in shock. And Susie does too. And she says, no. And Edmund's like, what? Now we look up on the beach and this, the water, the waves have formed a giant uh, fist that starts, that crashes down on them. And Susie yells, no, my love. And we're back in real time. And Maury is standing over Susie and the baby. And he says, don't try to sweet talk me, you cow. You ain't done nothing while I was gone. And Susie says, don't. Now, I'll be honest here. Maury is, he's got like a tube of something that he is, it's kind of greenish. And he's squirting it all over Susie and the baby. And the baby obviously is crying. Uh, Susie's saying, don't. And Maury says, I've had it with you and that crybaby. She says, please. And he's pouring more of this on her. She screams, Maury. And the baby, of course, is crying. That's when you see that the baby has this, uh, uh, this whatever he's putting on her. I don't know. Whatever that is, is on the baby, too. So Maury has Susie by the wrist, and he says, stop it. Stop bawling, both of you. Or damn it, you want to cry? I'll give you something to cry about. Now he picks up Susie over his head and throws her on the ground. Who, of course, yells. She hits the wall and she yells, Maury, and he's like, Quiet, bitch! And you, will you shut up? And he's talking about the baby, who is continuing to cry. He just says, Shut the hell up! Now Susie is, uh, her clothes are ripped and she's crying, obviously. She looks a mess. Um, her skin looks really red. Again, I don't know what he was like pouring or squirting onto her um it almost looks like a big like toothpaste i I don't know it's weird it's like but in the well it's part it's part of the half fantasy half waking up thing like he like 
really like dumped a bottle like a bucket of water on her but we see it's not that so anyway i don't know she's covered in this whatever and then in these further panels she's not really but her skin looks red i don't know i don't know if it's from like him being violent or what again that that cream i never even really noticed that before walking through it this time so that's strange it's kind of at the bottom of the panel and he has it in his hand you don't really i don't know anyway so she's crawling towards maury she can't stand she says no maury as she gasps for air so she crawls don't hurt my baby she continues to crawl she says please she's struggling she grabs him like wraps herself around his leg she says please so we have slap 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 her baby shrieks with each blow and then he is suddenly quiet Susie no oh god no stop and she gets up and she knees this motherfucker right in the crotch and takes her fingernails and just claws at his eyes and he's screaming at this point but he grabs her on her forearms says what are you doing how can I please a woman if I'm all smashed up answer me and he backhands her again across the face but it's really like she's he's throwing her and as he throws her um and she's falling her head hits the corner of a wooden dresser and then we hear freeze or i'll shoot and we have Susie thinking who and we see the silhouette approaching her she can't really see and she's like edmund edmund and now we see edmund kind of in a very like well, his face is a lot more clear, but he's putting his hand out, and it's kind of a very dreamlike, kind of bubbly panel, and he's got a uh, projectile firing from the middle of his hand. So from there, we see Maury charging at Edmund, who is now we're getting a side view uh, of him shooting the projectile at Maury, uh, who is yelling, Edmund, I'll kill you, I'll, ah! as he gets shot. And now we get a very vague kind of above shot of Edmund um, picking up Susie and he's saying, don't die, lady. Medics are coming to help you and the baby. She's saying, Edmund. He says, yeah, talk to me. What's your name? She says, Edmund. So we're viewing it. We're zooming in. We're realizing it's a it's a police officer. And he says, lady. Oh, God, no. As her eyes roll back in her head, we see his badge and it says, Edmund. Uh, so yeah, holy shit. Uh, talk about a, um, a dark fucking subject matter, uh, ending on a dark note. Um, you don't really know if the baby survived. That's, you know, I, you know, or just unconscious from being beaten by Maury. I guess you could assume either one. Um, it didn't seem like he threw the baby around like he did, uh, Susie. But yeah, I mean, he straight up threw Susie into a, I guess, and broke her neck and killed her. But yeah, I mean, talk about like just a dark, hopeless ending. Like this is, I, it's, I think this is beyond like, you know, um, getting back at the baseball team that, like, how did the story go? What was the Tales from the Crew? I can't remember. I think it was Tales from the Crew about the uh, baseball player. And then they, they uh, show up to the rival team and, <laughs> God, what was it? It was the... Or they invite one of the players in this other team to play, and they end up playing the game with his body parts. Um, that was really gory. Even that was like kind of like 
you know, obviously messed up, but in good fun. Uh, this is not like in good fun. You know, there's not really humor to be had here as in the story. Um, you know, maybe gallows humor, I guess, like me, like if you're Rick reading it and you're kind of breaking into the art of it and whatnot. But, um, yeah, geez, talk about, um, a hard story to swallow. This is, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could sort of frame the themes of this, you know, there's a lot of ways to think about it. And, and I actually really, really love that about it. Uh, as bad as it makes you feel and as like gross and grimy as it leaves you feeling, uh, I think that's a, a good thing, you know, um, because you should feel gross and grimy after reading, you know, I say gross and grimy, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, Jesus, nobody won. Um, unless there's a sequel out here where the baby grew up and, I don't know, ended up hanging out with Edmund. I, who knows? But like, uh, I don't know. Talk about, um, talk about a, an effective horror story. Uh, this is not a traditional horror genre story, but boy, is it horrific. Uh, yeah. So, uh, hats off to the folks in charge here with this one. Cause it's, it did its job. It, uh, really, it's a, it's a, it, I say it's a thinker. Like it's some really heady thing. It's, it's very straightforward, even though it has the fantastical element of her kind of drifting off into her fantasy world, her coping, you know. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very thematic, and uh, I, it's hard to, you know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's like, I, I feel bad saying, I loved this, but I was not expecting it. So, you know, I, I guess they didn't open with this because they were like, well, where do we go from here? So anyway, um, okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Shoot me your thoughts on this story. Uh, cause Jesus. Fuck. Okay. We can move on to, holy shit. I think it's actually the last man after, um, how long it took me to get through the last episode and, uh, the amount of stories. It seems weird that this is the final story, but this is the final story from Tales of Terror number one. And it is titled sticks and stones may break my bones by eric yarber and bill ray now we have a very stormy night with lightning crashing down on the ledge of what you think would be a castle overlooking water but it's actually more of like it looks more modern than that it's a tall tower but still it just doesn't look like you know your classical castle classical castle that should be a band that should be a band that i would refuse to listen to or go watch so somebody get on that they should play like yanni and philip glass covers so on this same panel with the waters we have a a beer floating in the water first of all uh, it says dog beer we also have a tap 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 uh, like a typing coming from the tower and then the horrors began. Oh, what wonderful rot! Tap 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 tap. Superb decay. <sighs> we can see inside of a window that there's a man sitting under a light at a desk, and another man tied up in almost a, not a Christ-like crucifix, but an actual X-style cross or uh, it's crucifix, where you're in the X position, I guess. But now in the foreground, we've got uh, the man that is chained up who is naked except for his white briefs, uh, very muscular and chiseled, but does look like 
uh, a black-haired Jack Palance for a lot of it. You could go Bruce Campbell on uh, on certain panels, but uh, so Mickey Rourke on others, and maybe even a Babe Ruth on others, because uh, it's it's a little all over the place, but that it fits the tone. Um, and he's kind of sort of groaning in the background. You've got a very creepy uh, man tapping away under the yellow light with his glasses glowing and his silhouette looking over at this uh we'll call him well he calls him mr richards so we're gonna call him mr richards and the creepo typing in the background says don't bother trying to talk mr richards the drug in your coffee has fully anesthetized your tongue little woozy let me refresh your memory now he's standing at mr richards with his hand on his chin and um well, I'll get through this word bubble. My name is P.H. Kovlar. The world knows me as brilliant author, specialist in demons. Mr. Richards groans again. Now we get a close-up and we realize this creepo isn't just any creepo. This is Robert Crumb. And he says, You sent me letters asking where I discovered the deities I write about. I invited you to my home. We had coffee. Now you're here in my study. Three floors beneath ground level. Now we, with the help of this yardstick, are going to write a story. And as he slaps Mr. Richards in the face, or Palance, as I might call him from now on, he lets out a... So Robert Crumb begins to type. There, illuminated but slightly in the dim light, stood the grim and merciless Huihoi Thiso, demon of the outer worlds. And he whacks him again. Abueth! Excellent, Mr. Riches. Tap, 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 tap. And next to Abueth, the gouger of Titan's eyes. Well spoken. But then came a sight which made these two horrors pale. Rising behind them was an image to drive one mad. Before me stood he who is... Tap, 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 tap. Hmm. What's a nice big word? Crumb is... Chewing on his ruler, or his yardstick, rather. Nemophilia itself. Now we go back outside this modern tower, castle, whatever, with a lightning strike, and it's still raining. He says, ah, yes. All together for this one, Mr. Richards. As he whacks him, we have Mr. Richards saying, back to the typing. Before me stood the great... Gug, 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 whose name alone is held responsible for 49 violent deaths. Now, Crumb, putting in the yardstick sort of up, who now looks like Sylvester Stallone, and has in a couple panels before this, now that I'm thinking of it. Kind of in his nose, and he's getting right in, right in his face. Just, you're very good at this, Mr. Richards. It's almost a shame that I've got to throw you into the lie pits when this story is done. He's kind of just poking and prodding him. Mr. Richards is sweating quite profusely. Now we see Crumb under the light on his, um, I guess, sitting just at his typewriter. And you have this scrape, scrape, scrape sound. He says, oh, pish tosh. It's those rats. Those rats in the walls. Just as my creative juices are flowing, they have to stir up noise. The scraping continues. Blasted vermin. I'd butcher them ruthlessly if I wasn't so scared to death of them. It's not rats, Mr. Kovlar. What the? You're talking. I knew about your writing methods when I came here. I didn't drink the coffee. Now we're seeing 
Mr. Richards, who is still chained up and very buff and cut, but he's smiling ear to ear. But, but your voice, those inarticulate cries. Oh, I wasn't crying in pain. I was only calling for help. Now we see the silhouettes of multiple demons start attacking Mr. Crumb. The end. So that's it. That is Tales of Terror number one from Eclipse Comics. Eclipse Comics. I have actually, um, I do have the first seven. I think it's seven. The first seven issues of of this I've actually picked up along the way uh, in different little, um, you know, outings and whatnot and online uh, searchings. I try to do my outings as much as possible at the local comic shop and uh, here and there around town. Um, but yeah, so this was a surprise kind of hit for me because I didn't know what, I'd never heard of this until I had found the first and second issue at the same time. So I was like, okay, well, what is this? So I picked up red. I was like, oh, fuck me. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about this. Um, apparently it is a companion, and I don't really understand, like, if these are things, it doesn't seem like these are things that are happening in another series, but every time I look, it would you know search online for this book, it would always be attached to alien encounters, and um, it's considered it's like sibling book. Even says so in the back. Uh, it says for the benefit of those of you who have picked up the first issue of Tales of Terror, but somehow failed to purchase it, sibling me. Alien Encounters number one. The next four paragraphs are reprinted from that mag. If you've already read the fine print in Alien Encounters number one, just get the following four chunks of time to type and go directly to the new stuff. Well, then you bump dump dump do. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I'm assuming it's, it's in the same vein as like Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt. Uh, you know, that, that, that family. Uh, yeah. So. But again, I've seen stuff online that makes it be like, did you forget to pick up Alien Encounters? How how could you possibly read this without... And that's more of like forum type stuff. Like, how did you get through Tales of Terror without reading Alien Encounters? I'm like, well, it's a separate fucking book. It's a separate magazine. They're not attached uh, literally to each other. Uh, So, you know, that's how it happened. But I haven't read Alien Encounters, and I have read now... Uh, multiple issues of Tales of Terror, and I really, really enjoy it. Uh, the art is fantastic. Um, this issue, this, I've already closed the book and put it back. Um, the final story here that we can <laughs> close out on, uh, the Sticks and Stones. Yeah, the Robert Crumb thing. Uh, there, I, Maybe one day we'll get to Robert Crumb. He doesn't, I, I haven't come across any of his stories horror books if he has any um although depends on who you ask i guess um but i don't know that that's a you know somebody that we would detail um you could go to yes that's right i'm gonna plug him again chris and reggie's cosmic treadmill podcast and they if you go back in their archives uh go to their website and whatnot they actually have um and i i now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm like, wait a minute, was that a Patreon thing? Because uh, I do support them on Patreon. But but I don't think it was. I believe it was one of uh, Reggie's comic stories, which I, I may have said it before. I can't remember if it was this episode because, again, this is days after I started recording this. Very happy that Reggie is back to uh, 
good or better health, um, recovering very well and in good spirits. It's great to hear him on podcasts, uh, coming back again. Uh, I would say even livelier than he was before, which is awesome. But he, I know he did a deep dive into Robert Crumb, who was a fantastic, very prolific, very unique, very, uh, you know, had his own style of drawing that has been imitated, but never done again, as everyone always says. No, um, no, but it's, uh, it's a very unique style, specific style. So he, and, and he's also a very con, he's kind of a, he's, I say kind of, he's a very controversial figure, but again, I probably won't end up going into his history. Um, so go check out Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill and look through their archives for Robert Crumb. Um, cause it's interesting, regardless of how controversial it is, cause he is very influential on a lot of people. Um, if you're a fan of Ed Pisker, I don't think you have an Ed Pisker without Robert Crumb, and that's just more modern-day artists. Uh, that doesn't even – I'm not even touching you know, anyone in between. But anyway, regardless, um, the art was fantastic, and this story, Sticks and Stones, I keep getting off of it. Um, and it, it was, again, very short, obviously, but a fun little you know, short twist. Um, I – the first time I read it, I remember thinking like, oh, the, the guy's just into it. Like he's like beating the guy and like slapping him with a stick and he's tied up. And I guess my first thought was like, oh, he kidnapped this guy, but, and he thinks he's torturing him, but the guy actually is just like, that's like his thing. That's what he gets off on. Like it's like, he's like fetish. Um, and then it just throws it over the edge of like, no, I was just summoning my own demons, uh, to get him. So I thought that was a fun little twist. Again, this is a very short thing. Um, so I thought that it was played out very nicely. Uh, funny and uh, again the art was fantastic so yeah to talk about a book that is all over the place tonally but as an anthology horror comic like that shit is so welcome for me like yeah if you're gonna have different writers and different artists and stuff like yeah give us different kinds of dark shit give me different kinds of dark stories i i, I love that um very eclectic and i can't wait to i'm not gonna do it next but I do want to get to more issues of this because this is a very good, a very good, uh, you know, there's not many issues of this book, but, you know, it's good. And I've read a few of them. I haven't read all of the ones that I have, and I still don't have every issue, but uh, the ones that I have read, I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. Very good. So um, without pushing this even further with just ranting and ranting and shit, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for getting this far <laughs> into it. Um, I, I love doing this. I don't, I, I know I don't get to do it as much as I wish I could. Um, and I, I do want to bring the production, um, up a notch. I'm hoping that I can, you know, get back to that soon. And hopefully on this episode, I can kind of, you know, wiggle that around and make it happen. But, uh, I, the more that, like, my uh, and I'm not blaming my kid, but I'm just saying like uh, the more that I'm getting, you know, what it means to be the father, uh, pretty much a stay at home work well work at home father for a two and a half year old kid who only goes to school uh, two days a week. Um, it's just not realistic. Uh, among the other things that I do have to do outside of comic books and stuff like that, uh, that 
I, you know, I could do this like just weekly on the day and the time and read all the, like I've said it before. I do it when I can. And, uh, I used to do it when my kid, I started off doing it when my kid was napping because my kid would nap for like four fucking hours. Now he naps for about an hour. Um, so, uh, that's, that's what stage we're at, but you don't care about that. That's boring. I know. Sorry. I'm going to get the hell out of here. Um, there are some creators that I have talked to who have sent over books that I am supposed to talk about. Uh, and I say that I don't want that to sound like I don't want to talk about them. I do want to talk about them. Um, and I even actually want to talk to the creators. It's just, again, timing, time. When is this going to happen? Um, so I'm working all that out. We got some really good stuff by some independent artists and, and writers too. And some people that are being published that, um, that's a, there's some good Kickstarter stuff too that's going on that I've been backing. So I'll get into that. I'll post it on the Twitter, which again is Horror Comics Pod. Um, you can email at horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. My personal Twitter is at RevRim, but honestly, just send it to the Horror Comics Pod on Twitter. Um, I pretty much can't stand, um, the majority of what happens on social media horror comics um and my other and the dc comic squad cast those handles have been kind of allocated uh nicely or curated really to be pretty on focus with what we talk about my personal one for some reason is just all over the place like i i I went through the uh the process of being like this this is the shit i don't want to see you can type all that in on Twitter, and it's supposed to hide it from you. Ever since I did that, I see more of it than fucking ever. I don't know. Whatever. So, um, I, I do have that, but again, the show handle might be best. Sorry for rambling. You all have a great night. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any suggestions, reading suggestions, show suggestions, or just mail that you want to send in, or that you want me to read on the show, just put show mail in the email or the Twitter direct message and um i will happily read and reply on the show and i'm well i'm you know obviously happy to talk on uh social media as well about whatever um getting a lot of good suggestions like lock and key um among uh, lots of other things that i actually have been acquiring uh copies of um in my outings looking for comics and whatnot so uh hopefully getting to those soon i'm still i still have just an immense backlog of older horror comics that i i kind of want to get through before i start getting to new stuff but i keep finding new stuff that i'm like i really want to talk about these so um we'll see but anyway thank you all very much for listening for supporting uh for downloading and hopefully maybe sharing with some folks um But either way, it means a lot that you're here. So you all have a good night and keep on reading those sometimes inappropriately dark and empty feeling, but most of the time fun horror comics.